That was the opening music to Treasure of the Sierra Madre, released by Warner Brothers and First National Pictures. I almost said First National Bank. Nah, it wouldn't be right. And it was released on January 6th, 1948. And it was directed by John Huston and starring Humphrey Bogart and... What was the his partner's name? Tim Holt. Tim Holt, thank you. Plays Curtin. And Walter Houston, who just made the movie for me. I don't know about you. Oh, I, I, it was a joy to watch him. And another uh, person that uh, was interesting to watch, Bruce Bennett was in the uh, movie. He played James Cody. And he's a graduate of the University of Washington and was a really top-flight athlete. And if my memory serves me right, he was in the Olympics. That's right. He was in the Olympics. He, he did a good job. He did. Uh, I was watching the making of, kind of behind-the-scenes video, and John Houston, well, uh, he was having a hard time kind of figuring out the character. And he asked John Houston, well, what's what's my motivation? You know, can you give me a little bit of help here? And John Houston said to him, well, you're smarter than these three guys. That's all you need to know. (laughs) (laughs) Apparently John Houston was a man of few words when it came to directing. Uh, I yeah, I get that impression too. I I think it would have been fun to be with this crew of people on location in the mountains outside of Durango, Mexico. They must have had some interesting evening poker games and uh, telling stories because I guess he was quite a storyteller, as was his dad. Well, and the whole crew stayed at a resort, so they were actually at a really nice resort during the times when they weren't filming. And, yeah, I think there was a lot of drinking that was going on and card games and... (laughs) Whatever. Whatever else, yeah. Whatever. I'm Bob Johnson, and I'm here in uh, Los Angeles where our weather has been really great. And I wanted to take a minute just to uh, mention a few things about a wonderful organization that I'm doing some volunteer work for the uh, uh, Motion Picture and Television Fund. Uh, It's just a uh, great place. It's located in Woodland Hills, California, for some of our listeners in other countries. And it was created in 1921 to provide health and social services for people in the entertainment industry. And it was originally begun by Charlie Chaplin uh, and several other people uh, from the uh, silent era of movies. So it's been in existence for over 90 years, and it uh, provides health care services through a number of different clinics, wellness programs, and a wonderful health club, uh, financial aid, social services, senior services. It's a residential retirement community that offers the full continuum of services. So it's just been a joy and an honor to uh, do some volunteer work with them. What a great mission they have, too. And it's a beautiful campus. It's Yeah, it is. It's almost like a, a kind of a college setting. 
Yeah, their mission is is ter- terrific, and they've got uh, really top flight uh, people that work there and are also on the board of directors. So, yeah, that's great. Well, good good for you. I'm Matt Johnson, uh, and for those of you that don't know and maybe tuning in uh, new here, uh, I'm Bob's son, and I'm coming to you from the Seattle area. And we've been actually having some pretty spectacular weather ourselves. Uh, unusually warm. It's been even up into the 60s. Which I know in Los Angeles that's still parka weather, but here in Seattle that's like shorts and t-shirt <laughs> weather. So it's all relative uh, to what you're used to, I guess. True enough. Um, you can find us, uh, we have a couple of places you can find us uh, for our podcast. One is on iTunes. If you look uh, for classic movie reviews, you'll find all of our reviews there. We've done almost 30 now. And our other location, Matt, is? Uh, on the internet, you can just go to classicmoviereviews.net. And we've got all of our episodes listed there. You can listen to them right on the website. You, it works great on uh, your mobile phone or on your iPad or computer. And uh, it's a it's a good way to just jump to an episode that you might be interested in. There's a listing of all of them in uh, order from the first one to the the newest one. And uh, we've been doing this for over a year now, right? Or is this? We I think we I think we're in our I think we finished our first year. Yes, I think we started last the end of last January. Or early February. That's an accomplishment. I was, I'm proud of us. Good job. And our listenership keeps growing every every uh, time we do a podcast, so that's good. It's yeah, it's getting kind of fun now to open up the the little app on my phone that tells me what the metrics are, and that graph just keeps going up. So that's fantastic. And there's no cost for listening to these. Nope, it's totally free. You get you get what you pay for. <laughs> right. We finished our public service announcements and our promotional announcements. That's right. So now we can get on, to the, on to, the get movie. to the movie. Uh, well, why don't we just start off with uh, like we usually do? You want to give us a little bit of background on the uh, financials and how it how it did? Oh, okay. Uh, I well, as from my reading, it was one of the first films that was filmed on location outside of the United States. They filmed it in and around Durango and the city of Tampico, Mexico. Uh, It's uh, listed on the U.S. National Film Registry by the Library of Congress as being preserved because it's culturally, historically, and and, uh, aesthetically significant. I would agree with that. I was thinking when I was looking at some of the background, it's... It holds up so well today after almost 70 years. It's amazing. Um, the budget for it was $3 million, and the box office was $4.3 million. The studio saw the film as a modest success, but my reading is that they were people were a bit disappointed that it hadn't been a bigger box office success because it was so well-crafted, written, photographed, and all of that. But it certainly holds up well, in my view. You know, there's some interesting uh, history around this story. Apparently, the person that wrote the original book, uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre, uh, is named B. Traven. 
And uh-huh. to this day, we still don't know who that actually was. Even though John Houston and the studio w- was in contact with, with this person, uh, supposedly B. Traven sent a representative to the set to provide input and, and, and be kind of his uh, uh, you know eyes and ears on the set. And there was some speculation that that actually was B. Traven, but there's no conclusive proof or evidence, and so it's a it's it's a mystery. Like if you if you go to Google and type in who is B. Traven, it, there's this whole uh, huge set of uh, results that come back, and you can just do some reading on this mystery of who this person was. Uh, wow. Yeah, it was interesting, and. Uh, John, John Houston was going to make this movie, and he really wanted to make this movie before World War II started, and, and had started some production on it, and had lined up Bogart to be in the movie, uh, but then got uh, drafted and, and had to go off and was making uh, uh, films for the uh, the services, which I, I guess were really, really good. I don't know if there's any way to watch those, but uh, apparently they're they're quite good. And uh, came back after the war, and this was the first movie that he wanted that he wanted to make after coming back. And the studio uh, and and uh, uh, John Huston had kind of been stalling because there had been other directors that had come and been attached to it, and other actors. But for one re- reason or another, they always fell through. And the speculation there was that John Huston, this was kind of his baby, and he really wanted to to make this movie. That's a really good background. He was such a talented director. I, the listing of his successful movies is so long. You know, Key Largo from 1948, The Asphalt Jungle from 1950, The African Queen from 1951, one that we're going to be reviewing on our next podcast, Beat the Devil from 1953, uh, Heaven Knows Mr. Allison from 1957, which is a really good movie with Robert Mitchum and Deborah Carr might be one that we'd want to look at in the future as a review. And another one that's really interesting is The Misfits with uh, Clark Gable, Montgomery Clift, Marilyn Monroe, and Eli Wallach. I mean, it goes on and on. The guy was just so talented. The um, the movie that came out right after this, uh, the Key Largo, was a big success. It was, and, very much so. Uh, there was... Yeah. It, one of the things that I loved about this movie, and I'm really glad that we did this movie, is because uh, John Huston won an Academy Award for the movie, and so did his dad. Uh, so they, it was, it was, if not the only one of the only times that a father and son uh, won an Academy Award in the same year. And I thought, hey, that's perfect. Father and son duo. Father and son. Well, there's another father and son connection in the movie. As well, uh, Tim Holt, his dad, Jack Holt, who had been very active in movies from the silent era and in the 1930s, makes a one-line appearance at the beginning of the film as one of the men that's down on their luck. So another father-son combination. Every time I see Jack Holt in an old movie, I think this guy would have been the perfect person to play Dick Tracy. Oh my gosh, yeah. To me, totally. he looks just like Dick Tracy. <laughs> I'm wondering if they patterned Dick Tracy after He's him. a handsome guy. I mean, yeah. he's No kidding. He looks like a movie actor. Um, 
just a couple other things I wanted to talk about that I learned about this movie and about John Huston and about Hollywood at this time. Uh, there were a lot of European uh, movies coming into the States in the late 40s. And they were a lot of them were really sort of considered avant-garde and, and artsy and, and kind of strange. Uh, but they, they, they were having an influence on Hollywood. And there were people that said that uh, Treasure of the Sierra Madre was sort of like one of the first movies that came out of Hollywood that were, was really influenced by uh, some of the European directors uh, in the style and the grittiness of it and... Um, the, the fact that it puts uh, uh, Bogart into a role that you wouldn't really expect him to be in because he'd been playing sort of leading men, uh, kind of gangsters or private eyes up until this point. And this is a really big departure from what people probably had expected from Bogart. And, and there was uh, some speculation that that's why the movie didn't do as well uh, because some people thought it was great, and they they loved seeing Bogart kind of go through that transformation that he goes through in the movie, and then other people were really put off by it because it just didn't meet their expectations of sort of the handsome, take charge, you know, leading man that he had been up to that point. Oh yes, and he was he was so popular with Casablanca and other shows. Well, you know, the same thing happened, uh, as I understand it, with Gregory Peck who made a movie at about the same time called The Gunfighter. And it never did well either because, I mean, it did okay, but it wasn't a big success. He's, he plays a a gunfighter, and he had a, he had a really dark mustache. And, and the head of the studio, I think it was 20th Century Fox, never liked that movie because they didn't he didn't think that Gregory Peck should ever have a mustache. <laughs> so, you know, it's like... So there, there are a lot of examples of movies where people move out of character, and they, they're very, and oftentimes very good movies. But people at that time just said, "Well, wait a minute, I, that's not Humphrey Bogart." Yeah, and, and he's got to be the hero. And there's, and there's, there's examples of that even today where people try to break out of that stereotypical role that they've been put into. Um, sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. But uh, I, it didn't hurt Bogart. I mean, he he went on to become. Or he was, but he continued to climb uh, in people's esteem as one of the best actors ever of all time. Uh, of all time. Another person, another person that was in the movie that I, I wanted to mention because I really thought he did a good job was the uh, Gold Hat character. Oh yeah, that was the bandit. <laughs> that was Alfonso Bedoya. Did you did you like his teeth? <laughs> he was. Oh my gosh, I, I love his teeth. And he, he looked like he might have showered or bathed about six years before that. Uh, <laughs> those scenes. He looked but like he looked, a real bandit. I mean, did they, he did. At first, I thought, <laughs> boy, did. they just pulled him right out of some gang that was roaming around down in Mexico. But actually, he was a pretty well-known actor in Mexico. Yes. Yep. Very much so. And he has one of the best lines in movies of all time <laughs> that gets. One, it's it's rated in the top ten. Yeah. He he says, "Oiga, señor." We are federales, you know, the mountain police. If you're the police, where are your badges? Badges? We ain't got no badges. We don't need no badges. I don't have to show you any stinking badges. Better not come any closer. <laughs> <I know. laughs> and then, of course, uh, Cheech and Chong uh, 
said that later in one of their movies, so you know, it lives on in infamy. It does. Uh, well, I, I guess we should mention, too, that we're going to do two two podcasts for the movie, break it, in, break it into two groups, or two parts, because there's so much to talk about, so... Uh, I know we're already about halfway through our normal time and we haven't even really started talking about the movie. And I still have a few more things I'd love to to mention, so... But maybe we should should start. One thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, do you think this movie would hold up well if it was done today? Just like this, if it were... If it came out today, would it do well in the theaters? I think it holds up extremely well. I think uh, people would be surprised uh, if they hadn't seen this movie and they think, oh, a movie from the 40s, it's black and white. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to be, it's going to be too melodramatic or it's going to be too uh, light. But uh, no, this is a pretty dark and intense movie. I think what would happen, though, is, is really similar to what they did with 310 to Yuma. I think they would kind of ramp up the drama and they would ramp up the uh, the effects and everything would sort of be bigger and, and louder than yeah. than it is. But but other than that, I think the story is just timeless. You know, it's about greed. It's about human nature. It's about fighting with the elements. And, you know, one of the things that uh, uh, Jack Warner wanted to possi- possibly change about the movie and he had asked John Huston about this. He he wanted to see if John Huston would put a happy ending into the movie. You know, maybe maybe uh, they they do get the gold at the end. You know, but John Huston was adamant, saying, "Nope, I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that." And Jack Warner, to his credit, backed him up and said, "Okay, you know, it's your movie." And and it, I think it 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 can't have a happy ending. I mean, there's no way. It's just. No. It's got to end the way that it ends. Well, I agree with what you said. I think it would hold up. Uh, I love the music. It fits the it fits the movie perfectly, and 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 the movie would not be as good if they hadn't filmed it on location. The location scenes are just so well done. It looks like it's about 140 degrees and hasn't rained in about five years. So oh like yeah, that. the location is uh, is great. It really feels like you're there in Mexico. Well, because they were, so that's good. But you can definitely tell when they've uh, switched over to the studio uh, sets. Yes, <laughs> yeah, you can. That would be changed in today's world. It, you wouldn't you wouldn't be able to tell. Oh, it'd either be a lot of CG background work, or they just film it all. Uh, well, yeah, it would. You you wouldn't be able to tell. Um, you know, remember last week when I, or last episode when I, I mentioned that title card that, that started the movie off and the music and I felt like, boy, we're going on an adventure. It's going to be like Indiana Jones. I felt the same way with this movie. Again, it was (laughs) the music and the title card. And, uh, I, I have to think that, that there was some influence from these movies in, in Indiana Jones. I would agree. I would agree. Uh, I, I kind of bounced around to my next uh, favorite. Uh, I just love the barber shop, the barber, and the haircut that Humphrey Bogart gets when he gets a little money from panhandling. <laughs> uh, that's That has to be the weirdest looking haircut. I mean, it looks like they put a quart of oil on his head. And the barber, 
he didn't say a single <laughs> word the whole time, but he looked no. like he was, he was like a crazy barber. He had this look in his eye. <laughs> but uh, just too much. You mentioned that how he had panhandled, and he panhandled from John Houston. That's who the the gringo was that he got the money from the three times in one day. I know he kept coming. <laughs> kept coming back, hey, Mister. Will you just take a fellow American to a meal? Such impudence never came my way. Early this afternoon, I gave you money. While I was having my shoes polished, I gave you more money. Now you put the bite on me again. Do me a favor, will you? Go occasionally to somebody else. It's beginning to get tiresome. Oh, excuse me, mister. I never thought it was you. I never looked at your face. I just looked at your hands and the money you gave me. Beg pardon, mister. I promise I'll never put the bite on you again. This is the very last you get from me. Just to make sure you don't forget your promise, here's another peso. Thanks, mister. Thanks. But from now on, you have to make your way through life without my assistance. I thought also that uh, Bogart at the beginning of the movie just seems like down on his luck, but he's he doesn't seem crazy to me. He he seems like a pretty normal guy that's just hungry and kind of desperate for either work or money or both, you know. Very much so. And then he hooks up with uh, the Tim Holt character. And this must have been an effort also to uh, sort of put Tim Holt into a bigger role in the 40s, he made quite a few movies, uh, but never took off with the kind of stardom that some of the other people did. Well, I thought he did a great job. Well, he was in a few big-time big successes, including this movie, but he was always kind of relegated to the B-movie yeah. category, even though I thought he was great. He 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 was perfect for that sidekick. Yes. Uh, he did he a was. really good job. Um one thing that I thought was funny was after he got that haircut, he walks out of the barber and this really beautiful woman walks by and gives him a look. And apparently that woman was a famous actress for Warner Brothers and she kind of did that walk-on as a joke or a favor. And uh, Bogart, who is playing uh, Dobbs, is, is the character's name. Uh, kind of follows her follows her down the alleyway, and I'm thinking, yeah, he's he's gonna go spend some of his money. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she would have been impressed with that haircut. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. There's a lot of uh, background story on on that person. Her name uh, was Ann Sheridan. Some people really say she was the person that walked by, and others say no, it wasn't. And I guess some people have studied it, you know, frame by frame, to see if it really was her. Oh, interesting. So there's some controversy about that, huh? There's some, yeah, there's some controversy, and she was a very big star in the 40s. I, I need to go back and look at it again to see if I can. That's interesting. Okay, well, I'll have to watch that scene again, yeah. too. Uh, that's what I love about this movie. There, There is so much going on, that, and, and, and a lot of it sort of either behind the scenes or kind of what led up to making the movie. But yeah, it's 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 pretty pretty rich. Uh, one one other thing I wanted to mention was that uh, Dobbs makes a really interesting observation about how gringos can't shine shoes for a living, and if they ever tried, forget it, they would never be able to work in the town yeah. again. Uh, so he says that... What a town. Tampico. You said it, brother. I could just get me a job that would bring in enough to buy passage, I'd shake its dust off my feet soon enough, you bet. Yeah. If I was a native, I'd get me a can of shoe polish and I'd be in business. I'd never let a gringo. It's 
sit on a bench till you're three quarters starved. You can beg from another gringo. You can even commit burglary. You try shining shoes in the street. Lemonade out of a bucket and your hash is settled. You'll never get another job from an American. Yeah, and the ladies would hound and pester you to death. Some town to be broken. Town isn't. I remember that scene, yep. He was still panhandling for money. Apparently this book uh, that w was written by B. Traven was a real like anti-capitalist uh, kind of manifesto. And I oh, think okay. that there's some of that that comes out in the screenplay, although I think the screenplay is more about a, is more a commentary about human nature than kind of capitalism or communism or anything like that. The, uh, I, yeah, I could see some of that. Another uh, person that went on for a movie career is Robert Blake. He plays the little boy that's selling the lottery tickets. Oh, yeah. He was persistent, wasn't he? Good thing, too. And for those of you that have seen In Cold Blood, the original movie from the 60s, Robert Blake is the lead character in that uh, Truman Capote story about murder in Kansas. He did a super job in that movie. I believe he's still... Well, I don't know that he's still making movies or television. I, I don't know that, but he sure looked young there. So then we're uh, we're about yeah we're about at the point where they get a job to go work on an oil uh, rig, and uh, he get they they get onto a ferry. It's uh, Dobbs and Curtin, but then they're working out on this oil rig for a few weeks, and they're not getting paid while they're there. Because the kind of the foreman who's running the show, Pat McCormick is his name. The actor is Barton McLean. Uh, says that you'll get paid when the work is finished and you step off the ferry. Uh, and we find out that uh, not so much. <laughs> yeah, that was another instance of double crossing. <laughs> yeah. Double dealing. Uh, McCormick sort of disappears and they can't find him. And so they're left with about zero money in their pocket. But they find a place to sleep, and this is where they meet up with Walter Houston's character, who's been talking up how he wants to go look for gold. Here, the rail pack train is a mountain waiting for the right guy to come along, discover a treasure, and then tickle it, which lets him have it. Question is, are the right guy? Ah, real bonanzas are few and far between. They take a lot of finding. Say, answer me this one, will you? Why is gold worth some 20 bucks an ounce? I don't know, because it's scarce. A thousand men say go searching for gold. After six months, one of them's lucky. One out of the thousand. His find represents not only his own labor, but that of 999 others to boot. That's uh, 6,000 months or 500 years, scrabbling over a mountain, going hungry and thirsty. Now, to gold, mister, is worth what it is because of the human labor that went into the finding and the getting of it. Never thought of it just like that. Well, there's no other explanation, mister. Gold and stuff ain't good for nothing except for making jewelry with gold teeth. <laughs> ah, gold's a devilish sort of a thing anyway. You start out, you tell yourself you'll be satisfied with 25,000 handsome smaggers worth of it. So help my lord and cross my heart. Fine resolution. <laughs> After months of sweating yourself dizzy and growing short on provisions and finding nothing, you finally come down to 15000 and ten. Finally, you say, Lord, let me just find $5,000 worth and never ask for anything more the rest of my life. <laughs> $5,000 is a lot of money. Mm. Yeah, here in this joint seems like a lot, but I tell you, if it was to make a real strike, you couldn't be dragged away. Not even the threat of miserable death would keep you from trying to add 10000 more. 10, you'd want to get 25, 25, you'd want to get 50, 50, 100, like roulette. One more turn, you know, always one more. <laughs> it wouldn't be that way with me. I swear it wouldn't. I'd take only what I set out to get. Even if there's still a half a million dollars worth lying around waiting to be picked up. He's, his name is Howard in the movie. Howard, yeah. 
And he's quite the salesman. I, sw- I, I he's really got this uh, pitch down, doesn't he? Oh, he does. He he just he just monopolizes the scenes that he's in. He's so good. And that place where they were staying was like horrible. Yeah, I mean, that was the smoke. ultimate Roach Motel, man. Seriously, oh, man. They used to call those flop houses. Uh, Howard uh, Walter Houston's character. I, I I thought this is so interesting. Um, but he presages the whole movie in his first scene. He basically foreshadows the entire movie in that first scene that he's in because he talks about how gold is a devilish sort of thing and it can do strange thing to men's souls and and uh, Dobbs is like, no, it's it's uh, you know it wouldn't do that to me. I'd be fine. I could handle it. It's it's an interesting little scene. As I watched that, you could see with uh, Walter Houston's character, as he watched Holt and Bogart shake hands, the look on his face said it all. There's, he, I, I almost could read his mind thinking, well, yeah, they're shaking hands on this, but you just wait. There's going to be trouble when they have the money over who's going to get it. Right, because uh, while they're at this flop house, uh, we find out that Dobbs has won the lottery. Uh, he bought like a one twentieth percent, or one twentieth of a lottery ticket, and it won. And he has just enough money from the winnings to to buy the the burrows and the the guns and the supplies that they need, uh, along with the money that Curtin and and Howard are going to put into the the pot, uh, but the the amount that Dobbs is putting in is is significantly more than the other two, and he's very sort of idealistic. Dobbs is about how that doesn't matter. All that matters is that we're a team. We're gonna go out there. We're yeah, gonna right. find gold together, and it's gonna we're gonna share and share alike. You know, and he's he's very sort of gung ho. But uh, you're right when when they shake hands. I think uh, Howard can kind of tell that you know. Experience tells them that that's not going to be the case for for long once they start finding gold, if they do. Uh, We then, I think we move on to where Dobbs and uh, Curtin. Curtin, yeah. Do meet up with the Barton McLean character. Mm Mm-hmm. And then they, they, they have a big barroom fight. So it was, that was an interesting scene because uh, two reasons. One, is that they they could, they did not know how to fight. It was it was so realistically done that it that's exactly what I imagine a barroom fight would look like. They're falling over each other, they're swinging and missing, they're you know, it's it's not like a movie where they're fighters, you know, they're not. And that's that comes across really well in that scene. The other thing that struck me with that scene is you could tell when they were using the stunt doubles. Yeah. And and another thing in today, if they were in today's movie making, if they made that, the actors would actually be choreographed to do that in a way that you wouldn't ever notice that there was a stunt double. It would be so well done. Yeah, and but I think the main point of that whole scene, really, besides kind of pointing out that these guys aren't fighters, really, was that they do get their money back from McCormick and Dobbs takes McCormick's wallet out of his jacket and he's got a whole wad of cash in his hands but he only takes the amount that he's owed by McCormick yes. and he throws the rest of the money down onto McCormick's face and I think what that shows is that he's an honest guy like he could have taken all that money but he didn't and that kind of sets up the 
the character at the beginning of the movie. Like, that's the epitome of, of his character at the beginning of the movie to me. What were they going to be paid per day for that work? I think it was $7 a day. Something like that. Uh, wow. And, and Dobbs says, uh, just to jump back, he, he had a funny line, because he's coming off of that oil rig, and he says... What's the matter with you two? Can't you take it? Well, it's 130 in the shade, and there ain't any shade up there on that derrick. Well, just figure you're a couple of millionaires in your own private steam bath. I know. <laughs> uh, oh. So they get their money, they get squared up with McCormick, and then the next scene is them on the train. And we oh, see them on that, the train, yes. and Walter Houston, uh, is, is his character is just talking a mile a minute about how they need to go someplace dangerous, someplace where no one else would go because they don't want to risk their hide for gold. And he's got this plan about how they're going to find the big, the big strike. And then they get attacked by bandits. And there was a funny, funny thing that I learned in the, in the behind the scenes video, which was that the Mexican actors who played those bandits, uh, they said, you can shoot at us, but only arms and legs, no killing. So much, and I, I thought so much for safety on the set. <laughs> right. Oh man, I don't want to. I don't want to be on that train. That was fairly dangerous. My goodness <laughs> sake! I can't imagine they bullets were actually shooting everywhere. bullets at each other, though. No, I, I hope not. <laughs> but that's this is where we first see Gold Hat. Yes, and he he comes back several times in the movie. He he keeps making uh, appearances all the way till the very end. He really does. He and his bad teeth. Boy, Dobbs, Dobbs really should have killed him right there at that, that first I know. <laughs> that first meetup, shouldn't no. he have? <laughs> he I missed like his that chance. The, after that shootout, they were talking about who got shot and how many they'd shot. I'm like, holy cow. I want out of here as fast as possible. Oh, and then we're, we're into the sleepy Mexican town. I guess that's Durango. And they're buying burros and supplies. And their burros have a special mark on them, a brand... Uh, that shows that they're owned by Dobbs and Curtin and, and Howard. The, there's a passage here where they're speaking only Spanish for about a minute. And there, there are several other scenes in the movie where they're only speaking Spanish. No subtitles. Yes. And I thought right. that was an interesting choice. Like, they don't even try to let you know what they're saying. Unless you spoke Spanish, you wouldn't really know. And that kind of gives you a sense of how Dobbs and Curtin might have felt. Because I don't think they spoke very much Spanish. I like the fact that there weren't subtitles because it made it seem more realistic and it really didn't interfere with the story or the plot. No, because they would always explain what, what they had said afterwards, but yeah, yeah it did. Oh, and then, uh, and then I love it because uh, Dobbs doesn't know how to saddle his burrow. <laughs> he, keeps, <I> know. <laughs> he keeps looking over at Howard like, how do I do this and where does this go? And he's so out of his depth. He's totally out of his depth uh, on this adventure. He has to get help from uh, a young boy to put the uh, to put the thing together. <laughs> and then and then we cut to a scene of them uh, headed out into the wilderness. And there's this really jaunty, fun kind of playful music that's going on in the background. And and I feel like, hey, it's just a fun trip. We're going camping. We're gonna find gold. How hard can we'll this be? be? We're going to be rich. 
then they, they stop for a, a break and Dobbs and Curtin are talking about how they had been really wrong about Howard in, the, in that they thought they were going to be carrying Howard with the, uh, and that you know Howard was going to drag them down remember what you said back in Tampico about having to pack that old man on our backs that was when I took him for an ordinary human being not part goat Look at him climb, will you? What gets me is how he can go all day long in the sun without any water. Maybe he's part camel, too. And then they switch the the camera on uh, Howard going up that that mountain. Like and he's, a, like, got tons of energy, and he's, yeah, he's just climbing that mountain like nobody's business. Uh, and then... While this is happening, Dobbs is kind of laying on the ground saying, maybe we should just turn back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired. But then he sees, this, he sees this gold in the rocks, and they get really excited, and they start calling Howard back. And Howard comes down and just chews them out because they'd found fool's gold. And they'd been using all their water to try to wash off the rocks so they could see these gold streaks through the oh, rocks. No, and, no. and Howard says, Full of gold, veins of it. So I wouldn't pay you dinner for a carload. What well, ain't gold? Pyrites. Who's gold? <laughs> oh, not there ain't plenty of the real stuff hereabouts. We walked over it four or five times. The place of yesterday that looked like rich diggings, but the water from washing the sand was eleven miles away, too far. And the other places, well, there wasn't enough gold to pay us a good day's wages. Hey, next time you fellas strike it rich, holler for me, will you? Before we start flashing water around. Water's precious. Sometimes it can be more precious than gold. Uh, Curtin and Curtin and Dobbs were truly what we call greenhorns. Uh, and then, as their journey continues, the music gets more ominous and the weather gets worse. Meanwhile, Howard is just trooping through it like nobody's business, and Dobbs is back there uh, <laughs> about ready to die, I think. Uh, and the the music kind of alternates on this little bit here between this jaunty music, like they're on this fun adventure, and then this ominous music, like they're all about to meet their end. And I, I know. I think there's some really it, nice foreshadowing in the music, uh, in the musical I do score. It, it really tells uh, a lot about the story, the way they, where they did the music. Exactly. They are really seriously, Dobbs and Curtin are about ready to give up because they've been going for days and days and days and they feel like they're not getting anywhere and they can't find any place to stop and look for gold. And uh, they, they they say this to Howard and, they, and Howard, again, chews them out and says, What's that you say? Go back. <laughs> well, tell my old grandmother. I got two very elegant bedfellows who kick at the first drop of rain and hide in the closet from thunder rumbles. My, 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 what great prospectors. Two shoe clerks reading the magazine about prospecting for gold in the land in the midnight sun, south of the border or west of the Rockies. <laughs> Shut your trap. Shut up, Ross. Smash your head flat. Go ahead. Go ahead. Throw it if you did. You'd never leave this wilderness alive. Without me, you two would die here more miserable than rats. I'll leave him alone. <laughs> Can't you see the old man's nuts? 
Nuts! Nuts, am I? <laughs> Let me tell you something, my two fine bedfellows. You're so dumb, there's nothing to compare you with. You're dumber than the dumbest jackass. Look at each other, will you? Do you ever see anything like yourself for being dumb specimens? <laughs> You're so dumb, you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet. <laughs> Nuggets of molten gold's rich, but not that rich. And here ain't the place to dig. It comes from someplace further up. Up there. Up there's where we got to go. Up there. And he's I love just that, so happy. And, he, and the other two guys, Dobbs and Curtin, are just like super excited at that point because they've actually found gold and they found a place where they can start digging. Uh, and Dobbs has a good line here that just again tells everyone how greenhorn he is as you said but he says i thought it was as easy as just finding the gold picking it up putting in a bag and taking it to the nearest bank (laughs) (laughs) certainly oh but this is kind of where things start going a little bit off for dobbs uh yep things start getting a little weird because once they've started to get the gold out of the ground uh howard is measuring it and figuring out how much they have and Dobbs wants to start dividing it up right there and then. Howard's like, well, I really don't care. We can keep it all together and divide it up later, or we can divide it up now, I, you know, whatever you want to do. And Dobbs and Curtin kind of say, well, let's let's divide it up now. It'll just be easier that way, and, and we can each keep track of our own our own pile. Yep. And I, Dobbs starts to get this look in his eye, like, it's got to be gold fever, right? Like, he's he's just not... Trust in the other two. And then they get into a discussion of how, how much they should mine before they head back. Yeah. And and Howard says, well, 25,000 25, would be plenty for me. And Dobbs is like, 25,000? That's nothing. I got, I got years of my life left. You're old. You're gonna, you don't need that much money. I need a lot of money. And he wants to get, I think, 75,000. 75,000, yeah. And... Uh, Howard says that's going to take us like a year of hard work to get, and Dobbs is like, "Well, fine. I mean, I got nothing better to do." <laughs> and we got the we got the thing set up for uh, mining, so yeah. we'll just stay here. Uh, we skipped one thing though. I, I know we're we're doing the deep dive on this movie, but I, I wanted to bring this up because I think it's kind of important. Um, there was a scene right before where, the scene where they talk about how much money they want to mine. And they're sitting around the campfire talking about what they're going to do with their money. What are you going to do with your hard-earned money, old-timer, when we get back and cash in? <laughs> I'm getting along in years. Oh, I can still hold up on in when it comes to a hard day's work. But I'm not the man I was once. Next year, next month, next week, by thunder, I wouldn't be the man I am today. Oh, I reckon I'll settle down to some quiet place, get me a little business, hardware, grocery store. Spend the better part of my time reading comic strips and adventure stories. <laughs> One thing's for sure, I'm not going to go prospecting again. Waste my time and money trying to find another gold mine. How about yourself? What plans have you of any? Well, I figure I'm buying some land and growing fruit. Peaches, maybe. How'd you come settle on peaches? One summer when I was a kid, I worked as a picker in the peach harbors in the San Joaquin Valley. Boy, it sure was something. Hundreds of people, old and young, whole families working together. At night after a day's work, we used to build big bonfires and sit around and sing the guitar music. Till morning sometimes. You'd go to sleep and wake up and sing, go to sleep again. 
Everybody had a wonderful time. Ever since then, I've had a hankering to be a fruit grower. It must be grand watching your own trees put on leaves, come into blossom and bear. Watching the fruit get big and ripe on the boughs, ready for picking. What's all that about? We're telling each other what we aim to do when we get back. Oh, uh, me, I, I got it all figured out what I'm going to do. Tell us about it, Dodsy. Well, first off, I'm going to a Turkish bath. I'm going to sweat and soak like get all the grime and dirt out of my system. <laughs> then I'm going to a haberdash. I'm going to get myself a brand new set of duds. Dozen of everything. Then I'm going to a swell cafe. And order everything on the bill of fare. And if it ain't just right, or maybe even if it is, I'm going to ball the waiter out and make him take the whole thing back. What's next on the program? What would be? But I think that's part of his problem. I mean, he, he wants all this money, but he's got no goals beyond just getting the money. He doesn't have any plans that he's that he's working towards other than, I just need as much gold as I can possibly get. I liked it, too, that uh, the, the Tim Holt character, in his dream of what he wanted to do with the money, at the end of the movie, that sort of looks like that might happen. Yeah, I thought that was a really I, I love that. nice I love that. way to tie that in. Up. Yeah. Because uh Cody well we we're not quite there yet, but uh we learn about Cody and how he's got a wife back in Texas and they work uh, a tree farm, <laughs> an orchard. Um So we're almost I think we're getting close to the end of this first of part 1 of our review. Uh but we can say that Dobbs's paranoia keeps ramping up. He he's getting to the point now where he can't sleep at night, and every time Curtin or Howard gets up to go to the bathroom or check on yeah. the burrows, he has to get up and check his stash to make sure that somebody hasn't taken some of his gold. Uh, and there's a funny scene where Howard gets up to check the burrows because he thought he heard uh, something out there, and then Dobbs gets up. And Curtin wakes up, and, and Howard's coming back, and Curtin says, well, where's Dobbs? And Curtin says, well, he's out there somewhere walking around. So then Curtin gets up, and then Dobbs comes back, and Dobbs <laughs> says to Howard, where's Curtin? Oh, he's out there looking for you. And then... <laughs> it's, a, it's a mad circle. Nobody's Indeed. ever going to be able to sleep. They're constantly like looking out to see if somebody's stealing from the other one. Uh, and then the next the next day, uh, Dobbs is talking to himself, and uh, he's definitely starting to go a little bit crazy at this point. And I think they'd probably be, be probably have been out there for a couple months, don't you think? At this point, oh, I do. Yeah, you kind of lose track of the time, but it it had to be that long just to build that uh, sluice uh, setup and and do all that mining. Yeah, and uh, maybe three. It seems to me I heard them say they were out there. Three months, but I, that I, that may not be. Yeah. So th three months out digging in the ground, getting more and more paranoid about all this money that they're accumulating, uh, and Howard has kind of had it. So he confronts Dobbs and he says, "You got something up your nose? Blow it out. It'll do you a world of good." And Dobbs is like, "I can't trust you guys. I, you know, you're you're both out to get me." And there's a scene where. Uh, Curtin is going to head into town to get supplies, but he sees a, a Gila monster go under this rock. Yeah. And he's going to go kill this Gila monster because those things are bad news if they bite you. Uh, but that rock is actually where Dobbs has been hiding his money. So Dobbs thinks that Curtin is trying to steal his money, and Dobbs uh, 
is kind of freaking out about that. And Curtin says, well, fine, why don't you just reach under there and get your money and make sure that it's all there? But, you know, you might want to know that there's a Gila monster under there, and those things don't let go. Even if you chop their head off, they still, they're still going to be know. biting you. And uh, they pull that rock back, and guess what? There's a Gila monster. There's a Gila monster, yeah. Right on top of all of his sacks of gold. Yep. So, Curtin heads into town to get supplies, and then this is where we meet Tim Holt's character, Cody. And Cody's very interested in what Curtin's doing. Well, Bruce, uh, Bruce, Bruce Bennett's character. Okay, so Bruce Bennett, we meet Bruce Bennett's character, Cody. And Cody's really interested in what Curtin's doing. And Curtin's trying to play it off like he's a hunter. But Cody knows better because he knows that there's not enough game around there to, to keep a hunter going. And he ends up following Curtin back to the camp. And this presents a real problem because now there's four of them. And Dobbs and Curtin and Howard are discussing amongst themselves what they're going to do with Cody. The next morning, he he, he ends up spending the night there. And uh, the three original guys, Curtin and Dobbs and Howard, are talking amongst themselves, okay, what are we going to do about this? What, what, what can we do? We have three options. And there's kind of this confrontation between Cody and the three of them where Cody basically lays out the fact that Oh, I know very well you guys could bump me off any minute you wish, but that's a risk worth running considering the stakes. Let's lay all our cards on the table. As I see it, you guys have got to do one of three things. Kill me, run me off, or take me in with you as a partner. Let's consider the first. Another guy may come along tomorrow, or maybe a dozen other guys. If you start bumping people off, just how far are you prepared to go with it? Ask yourselves that. Also, don't forget, the one actually to do the bumping off would forever be in the power of the other two. The only safe way would be for all three of you to drag out your cannons and bang away at the same instant like a firing squad. We wouldn't stop at anything to protect our interests. I claim killing me isn't it. But of course, that's for you to decide. As for choice number two, if you run me off, I might very well inform on you. We'd get you if you did that. We'd get you if we had to go all the way to China. 25% of the value of your find is the reward I'd get paid, and that'd be mighty tempting. Mighty tempting. Pretty strong argument in favor of our doing number one, mister. I don't deny it. But let's see what number three has to offer. If you take me in with you as a partner, you don't stand to lose anything. I'll not ask to share in what you've made so far, only in the profits to come. Well, what do you say? Do you mind, stranger, letting us talk this over alone among ourselves? Not at all. Go ahead. I have to look after my burrows anyway. And they can't really let him go at this point. Uh, and they don't want to bring him on as a partner. Actually, uh, Howard kind of says, well, why not bring him on as a partner? And they kind of brush him off like, no, we don't need another partner. Uh, so they decide to kill him, but they don't decide soon enough because right as they're about to go kill him, the bandits show up. And good, I think old, good old Gold good old Hat gold to the rescue. Gold Hat rescued uh, Bruce Bennett's character. Yep. <laughs> at, least, at least for a short period of time. And that brings us to about halfway through the movie, and uh, that's probably all we're going to be able Good to get through to... in part one here. It's, and... a, it's a fun movie to watch, though, I tell you. There's it's so a... much going on. It's it's really, it's it's more of a character study, isn't it, than, than anything else? I think it's... I think so, yeah. I, I think mean, so. It, it is kind of an adventure story, but at the same time, it's it's 
it's more the setting that provides some of the backdrop for the drama that happens. I, I really think that the movie, if if nothing else, the movie is about how Dobbs descends into kind of insanity uh, th- that's brought on by the fact that he's got gold fever. Oh, and, 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 and the double crossing and the, yeah, he was beyond uh, a little paranoid for sure. And he did a, a Bogart did a wonderful job of sort of gradually moving into that frame of mind. I think it's a real shame that he didn't get nominated for an Academy Award for this movie, uh, but he did yeah. get nominated for Key Largo, and I he did a great job in Key Largo. And I'm not I'm not disparaging his role in that movie at all, but to me, this was kind of the role of a lifetime. This one and the one where he plays uh, uh, in African Queen. Another John Huston movie. Those really put him in uh, situations that he had often not been in. in yeah, his I, roles. I, 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 I like and despise the African African Queen movie at the same time. I, I, I like the parts of it where they're on the boat and they're trying to get out of, you know, out of the situations that they find themselves in. But I really despise the beginning of the movie where they're so they're treating the natives in such a way that's that I find kind of offensive yeah. now. And I, it and is. I realize I'm bringing my 21st century, uh, mores into, you know, something that happened a long time ago, but it's, it's hard to watch, but, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. Maybe we'll do that movie sometime and we can just talk it out and see, see what we think. But, uh, uh that, that's kind of my first impression of it. Sounds good. All righty. Shall, well, we, shall we wrap it up for this time? Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Again, this is Matt Johnson coming to you from Seattle. And uh, again, you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net or just search for us in iTunes. Uh, look for Classic Movie Reviews. And Bob Johnson in Los Angeles wishing you happy movie watching. All right. <coughs> okay, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Sounds good. <laughs> you need a spittoon. I need to stop smoking. <laughs> uh, cigars. Yeah. Well, I watch old movies, I smoke cigars. <laughs> and drink bourbon. <laughs>